appears to be too good to be true, it normally isn't true, right? Uh, if you see something that appears to be too good to be true, it normally isn't true, right? Uh, if you see something that appears to be too good to be true, it normally isn't true, right? Now, I remember seeing something and I thought, man, that looks just amazing. And I remember observing a, a man and he was treating his wife with kindness and she seemed to share all the feelings he had for her and he had some children he appeared to be very kind to and they seemed to be very nice to him and loving to him and, and I thought, well, if it looks too good to be true, it probably isn't true. So I watched for quite some time and I came to the conclusion that in this particular instance at least, there was something that that family possessed that I knew I wanted my family to possess. Now, I remember just observing and watching a husband treat his wife with such kindness and watching her respond. And I remember watching him love his children and the children be loving to him. And what was of special interest to me is this, this brother in the Lord had two children, both daughters. I have daughters as well. And, and I thought, you know, uh, uh, that just looks like there's a joy in the midst of that family that I would love to have in my own family. And and down the road, when the opportunity arose where I could talk with this man, I, I thought, you know, what could I ask him? What question could I ask him that would help me to find out what it is I need to know? But have you ever needed information, but you knew yourself you weren't bright enough to ask the right question even? <laughs> I thought, well, I don't even know what to ask this guy. That's how dumb I am. So I came up with a question. I thought this, this will be a good way to pose it. And I remember asking him, I, I said, you know, watching you with your family... It's awesome. And I said, you're a little bit further down the road than I am, but when I observe you guys, I think, man, if that's how it could be in my family, I'd really be thankful for that. And so I asked him this. I said, so tell me, what do I not know? What advice would you have for me? Kind of gave him an open-door policy into my life. And I'll never forget what he said. It's probably not all there is that could be said, but I'll never forget what he did say. He said, Steve, I want you to know your children will forget almost all of their childhood. Almost all of it. But he said, I've learned that they'll remember what you do all the time and the big things that you do. They'll forget almost all of it, but they'll remember what you did all the time. We did that all the time. They'll remember that. And they'll remember the big things that you do. And he said, so we just determined that we were going to have some great routines, some great habits in our family life. And he mentioned some of those. And he said, we decided we were going to make great memories together, have some big times together. I just, I want to have the kind of family where we do some things, some routine things that are good and healthy. And we do some big things to create big memories and and I've not forgotten that all these years later and I've tried to incorporate it into our family's life and I just want you to know I've discovered along the way there's no such thing as a perfect family but I'm very grateful that our family's been a place where we've been able to find joy we've been able to live in joy and it's a great place to share joy with others and really it's like that on any team we could talk about work we could talk about your wrecked softball team I mean Really, these principles of enjoying being in a family or on a team are, are universal. And, and as we come to the text today in Philippians chapter 2, we've been reminded that Philippians was really a letter to a local church. And Paul, in this passage before us, is going to share some principles about how you can be on a team and receive joy from it and share joy to it. And it's going to be a great help to us today. Now, we're in the midst of this study. We've called it Enjoy. And in the first part of our study... In, 
In Philippians chapter 1, Paul really dealt with this question, where does joy come from? Where does it come from? And I won't re-preach all the messages, aren't you glad for that? Uh, you, you don't have patience for it, and I'm too tired probably already. But, but uh, as he went through there, he shared with us that, that uh, joy comes from, from relationships that we have. And of course, the most important relationship is our relationship with God. But based upon that, he talked about some other relationships in his life. He found that joy came from really having a confidence in his life that wasn't rooted and anchored within himself. A confidence that was placed in God that helped him along the way. He found that joy comes from living an authentic or a genuine life. You know, when we are hypocritical or two-faced, it requires twice the energy, twice the effort. And Paul learned there's a great joy in life from just living an authentic life of faith. And as we've made our way into chapter 2 in this study, we've learned not just what joy is or where it comes from. We're learning now how we can share joy. And it all started not with a mindset, but with a mind. The Bible says we're to put on the mind of Christ. And that is a humility, a humble mind. And if we want to be the kind of people that brighten the corner where we are, the kind of people that makes every place we are just a little bit better because of our presence, we're going to have to be humble people who don't think less of ourselves, but just think of ourselves less. People that focus on the needs of others. People like that share joy. We learned last week that we share joy when we find common truth in the Bible and then we obey what it is that God gave us to to do and and that's a great help but today specifically we're going to see how if we are good teammates in life in the various teams that we're on that we can share joy with those around us i want you to know this will work at home i've, I've lived it this will work at home uh, this will work on the job but let me tell you something today coastline this will work in a church family and that is the context this lesson is given it's given to a church family and I think we can be helped and encouraged and challenged and maybe corrected and, and, and just in, 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 a, in an overall sense, we can be improved for having been a part of this study today. I don't take for granted the privilege that I have to be here today, and I'm so grateful you're here today. And uh, I want us to get a hold of these things. If we can get this message nailed down, wherever you go, that part of the world will be better because you're in it. That's a great thought. And so let's work together today, understanding he's looking in, we're working together, he's the audience, we're the ones working, and, uh, and, and let's get into this study. If you're able, I'd like to invite you to join me in standing. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to begin reading in verse 19, we finish off last week in verse 18, so we pick it up in, in this verse, and, and the Bible says this, Paul speaking, he said, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. Now, I'm going to read on, but Paul is saying, I'm going to send this one Timothy. We'll talk more about him. And, and he, he is implying here that Timothy would bring comfort to them. And Paul is also saying he would be comforted knowing that Timothy would be there. Now, let's find out why he said that in verse 20. He said, for I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. I'll read on, but in a sense, Paul was saying, Timothy, when he gets there, he'll do what I would do if I could be with you. But I can't be with you. He was saying, I'm in prison, but, but Timothy, I can send him. In verse 21, we find out why Paul could say what he said in verse 20. He said, because or for all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. But you know the proof of him, that as a son with the Father, he served with me 
in the gospel. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. Yet I supposed it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. And I'm going to read on, but we're introduced to another character in the narrative of this story. A man with an unusual name, a man by the name of Epaphroditus. Now just in this one verse, Paul just gives us so many descriptive words to help us understand this man Epaphroditus. Uh, he said, he's my brother. Uh, he said, he's my companion in labor, my fellow soldier. He's a messenger and he's a minister. And these are all words that Paul used to identify this team member by the name of Epaphroditus. Verse 26, for he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that ye had heard that he had been sick. Now, I want you to think of that. Epaphroditus gets sick. We're going to find out nigh unto death. And his heart was heavy because he was afraid other people were going to worry about him. That's just the kind of guy Epaphroditus was, okay? Others minded all the way. Uh, what, what a man Epaphroditus was. And, and uh, he goes on in verse 27 to say this, For indeed he was sick, nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but on me too also, uh, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I sent him therefore the more carefully that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him. Epaphroditus he's speaking about. Receive him, therefore. And remember when you see a therefore, see what it's there for. So Paul is saying, on the basis of all I've just told you about this good man, receive him in the Lord with all gladness and hold such in reputation. Because for the work of Christ, he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life to supply your lack of service Toward me, We know that as Paul wrote this, he was in an imprisoned situation, house arrest, you might say, uh, but no freedom, confined, not comfortable, not comfortable, discomfort. Yet I love the way in the midst of verse 19, uh, he shares with others these words. He says, be of good comfort. Be of good comfort. He wants to talk about that today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, thank you for this morning, the opportunity to study and learn and grow, and may all of those things be done. Use this time. Help me by your power, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It would have been natural for Paul, while imprisoned in Rome, to have felt helpless. I don't think we would have been surprised at all had the letter of Philippians really been a a melancholy note explaining how difficult it was for Paul, how isolated he felt, how lonely he was, and how helpless he perceived himself to be. This church in Philippi was a church that he'd started about 10 years earlier. It's a church he loved, and it was a church that loved him, and he wanted to be there, but he was stuck. Here he is, he's, 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 he's in an imprisoned situation, and, and, and yet we do not get the sense at all, any sense, that he, he felt as though he was helpless. Now, we, we find that although this time could have been characterized as a lonely time, a desperate time may, maybe, that was not his reality. As Paul surveyed his present world, 
we find that he felt led of God to write a letter that was filled with joy and that was filled with hope and it was filled with love and confidence in Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons for his unusual outlook was the fact that Paul knew something. Paul knew that he was on a team. Paul knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, he knew for an absolute certainty that he was on God's team. In fact, I love the way Paul was able to open this passage. He was able to open these these verses in verse 19 this way. He said, I trust in the Lord Jesus. And when you have a confidence, an abiding confidence in an almighty God, it will do something to help you see your situation or your circumstances in a little bit different light. Paul was able to open these, these verses by saying, I trust in the Lord Jesus. But as he continued writing, we find that although Jesus is the preeminent source of our trust, we see that Paul understood that God and his goodness brings people into our lives And to a certain degree, we can have a confidence in them. We can trust them, not in their flesh per se, but in the fact that God brings people together to serve Him as a team. One of Paul's main partners in ministry was a man we met back in verse 1 in our study here in Philippians. It was a man by the name of Timothy. Uh, Timothy joined Paul in the work of the ministry just before Paul went to Philippi to start this great church that we now find this letter written to. He, He was to Paul like a son in the faith. In fact, Paul wrote two letters to Timothy but that have been included in the Bible, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And in 1 Timothy, Paul begins the letter this way. Just this is a letter to Timothy. He said to Timothy, my own son in the faith. Now, Paul, we don't know, had any children of his own. This was not a biological son to, to Timothy. But Paul was saying, Timothy, listen, we're in the family of God together and I love you. You're like a son to me. I'm so thankful for your presence in my life. I I love you like a father would love a son. They loved each other. They worked well together. And then we meet another man that Paul worked with, and this was the man by the name of Epaphroditus. He's only mentioned in this passage of Scripture. What we know of his life, it's, it's really limited to just the verses before us today. And in this group, we find some elements of teamwork that will help us to develop joy and will help us to share joy. And I would imagine if you're like me today, you'd say, I've probably got a little margin for growth and joy. Maybe you're overflowing in joy, but there's always room for more. And and, and if you love people, you want to be someone who shares joy. And Paul's going to tell us today exactly how that can be done. So if you have your outline nearby, let's go through this together. And we're going to see the first element in our study today. It's this. Joy-sharing teammates are caring. Are caring. One of the things I love about being on a team is this. Without saying a word, what you're readily admitting to others by your presence on the team is this. I can't do it all by myself. I can't win this on my own. I've got to have people around me that will help me and encourage me and and, uh, people that I can serve with. And so here we find Paul on this team mentioning his teammates. and, And we know that he could not leave Rome. He was shackled to a guard. And so he was thankful that Timothy could go and he had confidence that Timothy would do the work as Paul himself would have done it. Paul said that Timothy and he were like-minded. I looked that word like-minded up in a Bible dictionary. It means to be equal-souled. I love that that, uh, definition. Paul said, let me tell you something about Timothy. We are like-minded. We're equal-souled. He was saying, Philippians, you need to know this. When it comes to the work of the ministry there in your midst, me and Timothy, we're not identical in every way, but we're on the same page when it comes to what needs to be done there in your ministry. We're like-minded. 
But the attribute in Timothy's life that really made his involvement worthy of sharing joy was the fact that Paul said, you need to know when it comes to Timothy, he will naturally care for your state. Now, for Paul, this was interesting. This was something that was worthy of note. That was something different about Timothy. He said, let me tell you something. Timothy and I were kind of on the same page, and I want you to know that Timothy is someone who will naturally care for your state, and that's very different than the mindset of the world. In fact, we find that he's juxtaposed against the mindset of the world. The very next verse says this, for all... He said, Timothy, he'll live for others. He will naturally care for you. He, he loves people because of a work God's done in his life. He said, unlike everybody else who seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. You see, when our idea of success doesn't include caring, our choices inevitably become very selfish. When our idea of success becomes self-serving, we're going to find that other people become expendable. We don't naturally care for the needs of others, but rather we begin to be like the worldly mindset we seek our own. And friends, it's a great blessing in life when we have teammates who are caring people, and what a blessing it is when we find the joy in life of caring for others as well. Now, Timothy was distinct in the fact that he wasn't just looking out for himself. And when you think about it, our culture is totally obsessed with this mentality. We've seen this to a degree in our study, but many people today have a mindset in life. It's to build up a nest egg that's big enough to care for me and mine, for my life. And I hate to be so base, but I think we'll all know exactly what I'm talking about. It all becomes a financial thing to us in life. Looking out for ourselves, our needs, forecasting our future. And, and the race for, for our life through, through our young adult life and later adult life is to get that nest egg as big as we think it needs to be to meet our needs so we don't have to worry. We can take our, uh, uh, care of ourselves. We, we want to become self-sufficient. The name of the game is security and self-preservation. And friends, I want you to know something. There's more to life than just that. What we have to know is this, and if this is not in your notes today, I'd like to encourage you to write this down. Success in life is not found in the value of our wealth, but in the wealth of our values. Success in life, it's not about what you have. Success in life is about what has you. What is bigger than you? What is compelling you in life to do those things that God would have you to do? Now, of course, this doesn't mean we shouldn't plan, we shouldn't save, but it does mean this. There's a bigger goal, a higher goal, a more nobler goal in your life than to be totally absorbed with self and invest all your time and all your energy and all your thoughts on how can I get more stuff for me and for mine. You see, the perfect role model in terms of living for others is found in Jesus Christ. And in Mark chapter 10, we get some wonderful insight into the life of Jesus. The Bible says this, for even the Son of Man, that's Jesus, he came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give. Jesus came to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And so joy-sharing teammates are caring. So we move on in our study. We're going to make our way down to the next verse, and we'll learn there that joy-sharing teammates are reliable. They're reliable. As Paul continues, he keeps talking about Timothy, and, and he wants to make a point. And so to the believers in Philippi, he said this of Timothy. He said, you know, you all know the proof of him. You know the proof 
of Timothy. That means Timothy was proven. And you cannot be proven unless you've been through some things. You've been through some tests and some trials, some fires, some valleys maybe. And, 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 and Paul could say, look, I can tell you this about Timothy. He's been through some things. I've observed his behavior. He's proven. In fact, Timothy's name means to honor God. And Timothy lived up to his name. To become a proven teammate means that you endure some pressure moments in life. Now, nobody likes pressure, but you can't be proven unless you've been through some things in life. It's the old cliche. You've all heard it. People are like tea bags. You don't know what's inside of them until you put them in a little hot water. What Paul was saying when he said, you know, the proof of Timothy, he was saying this, Timothy, I've seen him in some hot water situations in life. And I saw what came out in those pressure moments and what came out on from the inside out. It was more attractive than what I saw from the outside alone. There was something happening in his life. Now, nobody, as I said, nobody likes pressure. But if a team is going to do well, there needs to be some team members who will run in when everyone else in the world's running out. Some people who aren't afraid of those pressure moments, they run in. Now, some of you are blessed with a great personality, and that's wonderful. It can be a great gift, but I just want to be crystal clear. Paul was not complimenting Timothy's personality here. It's deeper than that. It's deeper than image. He was talking about integrity there was integrity in timothy's life solomon in proverbs chapter 11 and verse 3 said this the integrity of the upright shall guide them but the perverseness of transgressors shall destroy them paul was saying let me tell you about timothy he's a man of integrity sin friends it's destructive it destroys and the antidote is salvation but practically we see the benefit of guidance found in a life of integrity before the Lord. Solomon later wrote in Proverbs chapter 20 this. He said, most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness. Now, isn't that the truth? We all can write a pretty mean resume, can't we? Most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find? That's a rhetorical question. Solomon said, you know, most people will tell you how good they are. But he said, when it comes right down to it, a faithful man, a reliable man, a trustworthy man, they're kind of hard to find. Who can find them? You see, joy-sharing teammates live faithful lives. So we've seen joy-sharing teammates are caring. Joy-sharing teammates are reliable. Here's the next thought we're going to consider. Joy-sharing teammates are ministers. Ministers. Now, it seems that the plan in Philippi was for Epaphroditus to take an offering to Paul and stay with him so Timothy, who was with him, could return. But that just that didn't work well for Paul's situation. And so Paul kind of made a command decision, said, no, here's what I'm going to do. Epaphroditus, you got here. We've spent some time together. I think I'll go ahead and send you, you back. And, and so Paul sends Epaphroditus back. But Paul was very careful that he explained to the church why there was a change because he did not want anybody to look at Epaphroditus and think, man, you haven't done a good job here. He'd done a great job. And so a big part of the reason for this book of Philippians is to let these people know what was going on. And Paul didn't want Epaphroditus to appear as though he had failed when he had done a great job. And so Paul really gives us a lot of insight into, into this man's character and he would have been speaking this to the church. And so Paul uses some descriptive terms. Listen to how Paul talks about this man. He says, he's my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier. Now, these are words of great importance. 
Maybe you've heard Christians refer to one another's brother or sister. The Apostle Paul, I think it was like 133 times in the New Testament, refers to the family of faith as, as brother. It's a term of endearment. And then he said, he's my companion in labor. We're working together. He's my fellow soldier. Now, let me tell you why this was so interesting. In the time of Paul, everything was as segregated as it could possibly be. There was not equality in a general sense. It was very clear. You were either a Jew or you were a Gentile. You were either rich or you were in abject poverty. You were either among the elite or you were a plebe of very little value in the eyes of most people. This idea of equality really was a uniquely Christian idea. At this moment in world history, there was a, a complete separation of everybody and everything. And here's Paul, an apostle, called personally by Jesus Christ to serve in the way in which he served, the most successful missionary in any way you want to measure it that the world had ever known, author of, of uh, the majority of the New Testament books, and he's speaking about Epaphroditus, frankly a man we only find one time in the Bible, and he says, let me tell you something about Epaphroditus. We're the same, he and I. We're brothers, we're, we're, we're working together, we're fellow soldiers, and, and what a joy it is to see how, how teams can come together in that way. But the final word Paul used was particularly important. He said this, he said, and he that ministered to my wants. Now, if you circle or underline or highlight things in your Bible, we need to learn this word ministered. Make a note of that. He said he ministered to my wants. Now, this word minister is often used among Christians too, isn't it? How many of you have heard a pastor called a minister before? Yeah, most of you. I don't know why. That one makes me feel funny sometimes, you know. But uh, sometimes you'll hear, hear that minister. That's kind of a Christian word. But I want you to know that is not the sense Paul used the word minister in this passage. He wasn't pulling out some Christian colloquialism that he could drop in on these people. That's not at all what he was doing. In fact, the word minister that he used here refers to civil servants or those who were serving the government. That's, that's what he said Epaphroditus was. A minister, a public minister, a civil servant. Now, I need to make this distinction. In our time and space, we think of those that we would call civil or civic servants. That's a term we'll still use today, public servants. And sometimes, not always, I'm being general, but I have to make this distinction to understand here. Sometimes when that terminology is used, we think, oh yeah, fat cats, right? Because it seems the higher you go being a servant of the people, the more money you make, the more perks you make. Uh, it's not unusual for the servants to make two or three times more than, than the rest and, and, and to maybe make a guaranteed pension for the rest of their lives. And, and most people, you know, they're all the time thinking about, about the future. And, and so we would say, well, wait a minute, the servants, they seem to be doing far better than everybody else. And we're not going to get into the politics of all that. Of course, we're glad for people to make a living. And I'll even talk about that more. That's what we think of when we think of a public servant, a civil or civic servant. But when Paul said that Epaphroditus was a minister, he was referring to a very special type of a servant, the kind that took no compensation. There were those in that day who would, who would work, they would have a business, they would, they would uh, uh, make some, some money, and it was considered an honor to give of your time, to give to cover your own expenses, to serve the public. To give of yourself. And Paul said, let me tell you something about Epaphroditus. This man's taken of his own time. 
He's taken of his own resources. He's put himself to great uh, uh, danger for me. He's a minister. He didn't do this for what he could get out of it. He did this from his heart. Now think about what Epaphroditus did. He left Philippi and made an 800-mile journey on foot to Rome. He was carrying an offering that the church had received to give it to Paul to help take care of him and meet his needs while, while he's in an imprisoned situation. While he's traveling, he gets so sick, the Bible says he was nigh unto death, but he presses on. His only concern in his sickness is that other people will hear how sick he is and they will worry. And yet he kept going. And Paul said to the church in Philippi, this is a good man. We're brothers, we're companions, we're fellow soldiers. And he said, Epaphroditus, in every sense of the word, is a minister. He would give it all for the benefit of others. Now, if I were to ask you today, how many of you give 100% on the job? Uh, some would say, well, yeah, I give 100% on the job. But I've been told sometimes our definition of that varies Someone could say, well, I give 100% on the job. I give 12% on Monday, you know, and 23% on Tuesday, and 40% on Wednesday, and 20% on Thursday, and 5% on Friday. You add that up, and I have given 100%. In fact, sometimes by that math, we can say this week I gave 110%, and, and yet that's very different than how a true heart of commitment measures things. Epaphroditus was the kind of man that said, I, I, I want to live fully committed to doing what God would put on my heart to do. And if we hope to be a joy-giving minister, we will fulfill our role with all our hearts. The Bible in Colossians chapter 3 says this, Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service, not, not with eye service, you know, like, like men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. He was saying basically, do what you do in the lives of others for God. Do it for the Lord. That was a heart Epaphroditus had. In the year 252 in the city of Carthage, a plague broke out. Plagues are scary today, but back in that day, they were just so mysterious. The non-believers in Carthage did what you would have expected people at that time to do who didn't have a clear understanding of what plagues were and what caused them. They fled. And that meant that they left dying people uncared for and dead people unburied and 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 the non-believers in Carthage they just left they fled they they ran away but there was a Christian man by the name of Cyprian he gathered the believers together and said you know we're not going to run from this he stayed behind they they buried the dead they cared for the sick and although not all of the sick recovered many of them were physically saved because of the effort the labor of these believers and History tells us that the non-believers of the time observed the behavior of these Christians and they, they came up with, with a word to refer to them. They called them the riskers or the gamblers. Now, I don't think they meant it in the sense that, you know, we would use that term. It's not just that they knew when to hold them or knew when to fold them, okay? <laughs> knew when to walk away, knew when to run. How many of you are picking up what I'm putting down this morning, huh? <laughs> Good, I thought we got to a level there. We were just at one for a minute. But uh, they weren't calling them gamblers because they gambled in that sense. What they meant was this. They are willing to risk for others. When others run away, they run in. They, they put their life on the line. They were, they were ministers. And joy-sharing teammates are 
ministers. But I want us to think of the final thought we'll consider this morning. And it's that joy-sharing teammates are appreciative. As this chapter closes, Paul wrote that he was taking great care to explain this to them. And, and, and he said this as he was talking to them. He said, when you see him again, you may rejoice. I'm telling you all this because when Epaphroditus returns, I want you to rejoice. Rejoice. That has to do with joy. Joy again. He, he was saying that they could find joy in their lives when they understood the value and role that another, Epaphroditus, was fulfilling. And Paul goes on to say that he could have joy in his life when he came to learn and understand the value and the role that other teammates in his life fulfilled. And, and, and what a joy it is when we come to the place in life where we say, you know something, we've been likened unto a team, we've been likened unto an army, spiritually speaking, we've been likened unto a body, the church I'm referring to, and, and although our jobs vary, we're to function as one, and every teammate is important, is valued, and is necessary. See, I have to tell you that I've been in situations in life that although uncomfortable, were far better than the situation the Apostle Paul was in. And even though my situation was far better than his, I still would battle loneliness and discouragement. Now, all of you are weird, but not all of you are weird in the same ways that I am weird. <laughs> but sometimes when I'm going through a situation, I'll withdraw. I'll withdraw. And then in my heart, I'll get upset because I feel alone. And I'm the one that walked away from everybody else and then got, got kind of crabby, like, well, you know, you just weren't... And, and it was me. And basically, I'm saying, you know, there's no team here. I, I'm all alone. It's just me. Everything's on my shoulders. And, and Paul was able to have joy and share joy because he came to the place in his life where he said, you know, there are going to be moments in time where I'm going to be far away from where I'd prefer to be in a situation I would not have chosen for myself. But I'm on a team, and as he started out, he said, and I trust the Lord Jesus, and I've got some good people in my life, and I'm thankful for that. Listen, one of the best things we can do in life is just take time to be thankful. Look around and realize this. God loved you so much that when he from eternity past saw that you would come to a point where you became a believer, he had already created a beautiful organism called the local church. And his desire is that every person who claims to be a Christian would get plugged in to the organism that he created to give us health, a place where we can learn more of joy, and a place where we, through ministry to one another, can share joy. God made all this for you. Paul's words in this text really reveal that he, the church, Timothy, Epaphroditus, they, they were a team. He illustrates for us, he, he really exemplifies what teammates are all about. They were caring and reliable and ministers and appreciative of one another. If you'll let me tell a quick story, I'll be done. When our church was just getting started, I had this sense that if it was going to go, that was on me. And most of you know the story. When we came here, we did not know anybody. We just moved to the community and started inviting people to church. And, and I knew if people were going to get invited to come to church, I'd have to invite them. There was nobody else. When we began meeting in the community center, I, I would get down there uh, early and 
whatever they considered clean, I didn't think was clean enough, so I'd reclean the community center, and I'd go in the bathroom and clean that up real good. Back in those days, uh, I didn't just lead the singing, although when I did, our music was really good, okay? Uh, but I picked out the songs and made the order of service and I laid out the bulletin and printed them and folded them and every visit that was made at Coastline I made. And I think in, the, in my heart there was this smart understanding. Look, if you need a committee to get something done, don't start a church. I knew this. There, there ain't nobody else. Get out there and get it done. Don't look around. Don't stand with your hand out. What are you doing? You want five? No, get to work, man. Go do something. And I understood that. And because God is good, I think he honored the faith and he blessed the labor and he promised his word would not return void and our church began to grow. But listen, but it outgrew me almost instantly. I set up a pattern those early days. I'd visit almost everybody in our church every week. And what I did was I set an expectation. And it wasn't anyone in our church's fault, but an expectation. Now, pastor will be here for that. So he's here for everything. And as the church grew, I kind of came to the conclusion more people means more and more work. And once you kind of feel like you're already maxing out, it, it became frustrating. You see, the church grew, but I did not grow in my leadership at the same rate. And so I'm feeling this weight on me getting heavier and heavier and heavier. And it was nobody's fault but mine. And it wasn't like I, I battle with pride, but it's not like I felt like I've got to be in the middle of everything. It wasn't like that. It was just I didn't know what to do. I mean, I knew how to start a thing, but I didn't know what to do next. And so, you know, I just keep, keep throwing bricks, so to speak, in the backpack. And it's just weighing me down. And, and I kind of got a feeling in my heart, like, you know, I'm carrying all this weight and everyone's over here eating donuts and coffee and good for them. And I'm, I'm feeding up spiritual meals and I'm about to die over here. And everyone says, this is great. And I'm thinking, this is not great. This is heavy. But God continued to bless and we kind of made it through some of those early days and we got in our first building. And I really believe if it's in the Bible, we, we should believe it and do it. And what we learn about the local, visible, New Testament church, we learn from the Bible. And I read in the Bible that there are pastors, bishops, elders, a variety of terms, I believe, referring to the office of the pastor. And there was another office in the local church called deacons. And I thought, well, it's in the Bible, we're going to do it. But I didn't understand it. And again, if you'll just let me be super honest with you, I'd heard a lot of stories of, of churches where there was just fights and disagreements in the church. Have any of you have heard a story like that? Isn't it so very sad? And, and we didn't have any of that in our church, but I just thought normally deacons are in the middle of that, you know. <laughs> so I thought, well, well we're going to ha have problems when, when we get to that place. Well, that was crazy. But uh, so we... We as a church, we selected deacons, and, and that didn't make anything better because to me that was just one more group to oversee. It's another meeting to get ready for, and I'd try and share a devotion, and, and it was just like one more thing to do, and that was nobody's fault but mine. It wasn't their fault. Everything was growing but me. I was the log jam. 
And I'll never forget the deacons meeting where we were going to get together and I was going to share with the deacons that I really felt God was going to give us this property. And to get ready for that meeting, I sat my wife down and I practiced on her. <laughs> and, and when I shared with her that God's going to give us this property, she said, well, how is that going to happen? How are we gonna she started asking me questions and that irritated me, you know. <laughs> so I... I, I kind of blew that off and went to the deacons meeting. We went through it all. And, and uh, so I, I shared with them what was on my heart. And they asked the same questions my wife did. And I thought, you two guys, come on, man. You know, did my wife get to you? What's happening here? And I, I hope this isn't as bad as it sounds, but I'm pretty sure it was. Low point for me as a leader, probably at Coastline. In, in that moment, I kind of opened my heart and said, I believe God's going to give us that property. And reasonable questions were asked. And in response, here's how not to do it. Here's how I did it. I said, just forget it. That's pretty mature, right? You know, just forget <laughs> it. Um, and I, I was so frustrated because I just thought, yeah, relax, man, I don't know what to do. God's blessing in spite of me. I, I knew that all along, believe me. But I just thought, I'm just carrying all this alone. I can't, I can't get anybody to help. And, and I remember after that meeting, Roy Wallen, he pulled me aside and he said, Pastor, you know we're, we're on your team, don't you? And I said, yeah. And I don't know that I knew that, but I didn't know what else to say. <laughs> I thought no was the wrong answer, you know. No, I thought you were the enemy. And, and he, he said some nice things, and then frankly, as a brother in the Lord, he corrected me. And he said, you've got it in your head, you've got to do everything. And it, it, again, it wasn't that I wanted to, I just didn't know really how else to do it, you know. And, and he said, man, we, we love you and this church, and, and we want to help and be a part of this, and we can work together. And, and that talk went on for a long time, and we met again, and the talk continued, and and I've got a long way to grow. Listen, for those who, who are critical of me, it's frustrating to them because I always agree with them. I've got a lot to learn, a lot, a lot of growing to do in my life. But that day was kind of a watershed moment where I began to understand that a church only works well when it's a team. Now, there's a role for a pastor to fulfill, just like there's a role for anybody else to fulfill. But it's not the role of any one person at this church to carry around a thousand pound backpack now look here i demanded every brick be put in my backpack and then i got a bad attitude in my heart towards everyone else because they weren't carrying any and another brick would come along just give me it and i'd throw it in and i'd get mad at everybody you know that day i i felt like in a sense i was able to take that backpack off now i mean i still got learning to do don't get me wrong it was so liberating. It was so liberating to find out that we could work together, we could have the mind of Christ, we could be teammates, we could be companions, we could be fellow uh, soldiers and laborers, and, and we could minister one to another, and, and, and we could serve together. And, and, and again, I mean, this is a work in progress. About the time I figure out how it works at one stage in the life of a church, everything changes again, you know, and, 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 and yet... What a joy it is to know as we work together in the one institution that Jesus Christ ordained to reach the world with the gospel that we can get far more done. And so we have an offering next week.
March 2nd, for the faith offering. We're to give by faith and for the faith. If someone were to say, what's the offering for? I would say it's for the eventual expansion or relocation of Coastline Baptist Church. How many of you have heard that expression before? The eventual expansion or relocation of Coastline Baptist Church. If someone were to tighten the screws on me and say, well, what does that mean? It means the eventual, some point in the future, we will expand or relocate. No blueprints, no picture of a building. And I'm not apologizing for any of that. I took that backpack off already. But I believe God's been so good and gracious to us in the past, and I believe our future will be brighter than our past has been. And whether it's this year or next or whatever, I'll leave that in God's hands. But as a church family, we have an opportunity next week to give sacrificially to get ready for the next step. Now, you're just going to have to trust what I'm going to say is true right now. If you don't believe me, that's okay, but I'll say it, all right? If we had one huge benefactor who just put all the money down that we would ever need, or if we struggled along and as a church family we all did our best and our combined best met the need, I would pick our church family working together any day. Now, if I could have both, that'd be great too, right? (laughs) But what I'm saying is this. We're moving ahead into the future. We want to see more of what what God has done. So what what do we do? Well, we don't give the bag of bricks to any one person. We just all do our our part. Lord, what would you have me to do? What would you have me to give? You see, I know this message works because it's in the Bible and because this message has worked in my life. A brother in Christ came along beside me and said, Look, you're missing something here, man, this this teamwork part of it. And I didn't learn it all that day, but it was a breakthrough moment for me. It was wonderful. And guess what? Our church wasn't hindered when I started handing out bricks because I found there are a lot of Christians in churches who want to have a part. And we have an opportunity to do so. Lord, you're so good to us. I really